Just a quick note about today's podcast. Uh, we had some audio issues where Aubrey's computer decided to restart a, about 20 minutes or so into the recording. Fortunately, we were able to save most of that audio with a backup. Uh, just doesn't sound quite as good as we normally like it to. And so about 20 or so minutes in, uh, her audio quality is going to improve significantly. And uh, for the rest, it should sound really good. So thanks again for listening, everybody. Well, hello and welcome back to the middle of medicine. This is episode number six, and I am one of your regular hosts, Peter Jones. And I'm your other host, Aubrey Jones. Well, Aubrey, how are you doing today? I'm good. I got off shift pretty late today. (laughs) (laughs) We're actually recording a little later than we planned because you texted me and you're like, hey, we're supposed to be recording in like 10 minutes and I just barely clocked out. Yeah, I clocked out almost an hour late today because it was just, it was a crazy day. So I was there for 13 hours. Ugh. That's a long. That's time. all I got. That's that, all I got. It's just that makes for a long day. I totally hear you. There. Yeah, it was a long day. But how are you? I'm hanging in there. I'm doing well. Got a little, uh, little under the weather last week, and uh, feel like I'm still kind of getting over that. So, uh, when I recorded um, my other podcast last week with Braden, I was a little. Uh, a little more rumbly than usual. Yeah, a little raspy. It, I had to, uh, I had to text your brother and say, "Emergency! Bring me some water." I forgot. <laughs> so today I'm a little more prepared. I have a water bottle that I can kind of sip from just in case I start to get uh, dry and scratchy. But other than that, doing well, staying busy at work, as I'm sure you are as well. <laughs> yeah, it's going. <laughs> I mean, that's all it can. It's all we can do some days, right? Yeah, for real. So I have a question for you. This is important. Do What's you that? know what tomorrow is, Aubrey? Who? March what is 10th. tomorrow? March 10th. Yep. It's a big deal. What is this big deal? March 10th is World Kidney Day. Oh, <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> it is a thing. It's totally a thing. In fact, I actually found out about it. I would like to claim that I know about it since kidneys are kind of sort of my thing, at least in part. Um, what? But I didn't know until I saw in a Slack that I'm a member of, somebody was talking mm-hmm. about how there was a um, like a petition to get the Unicode Consortium, who are the people who are behind emojis, to create a kidney emoji. And I was I there instantly, was one. there's not a kidney emoji. No. Huh. So, Very weird. You know, I'm all over that. I think we need to get kidney <laughs> emojis so that we can start using kidneys uh, in our talk. We can put kidneys on pictures. We can text kidneys. I mean, just kidneys all the time. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I think we need kidneys, more kidneys. So, Agreed. You know, just wanted to make sure that you knew that, that our listeners know March 10th, World Kidney Day. I mean, it's not even national. We're talking, this is World Kidney Day. This is a big deal. Wow, this is a big deal. It is a big deal. National holiday. International holiday. International. Yeah, this is big. I mean, this is beyond, <laughs> beyond national. We're talking huge deal. Well, before we jump into, uh, again, kind of dovetailing on that, and the reason I thought that this older article from Gomer blog was particularly funny, uh, maybe you remember, maybe you don't remember, but a couple of years ago, there was uh, there was this thing where these kind of monoliths just popped up in the desert. There was one in uh, oh. southeastern Utah. 
There mm-hmm. was one in California. There was one, I think, in Romania that just sort of popped up and they were there for a little bit and then they disappeared, right? Interesting, yeah. So I found this Gomer blog report uh, back from uh, sometime in maybe 2020. Uh, anyway, it's titled Another Monolith Found with Patient's Left Kidney. And it says, after reports of a mysterious monolith appearing in the desert of southeastern Utah, followed by similar structures recently found in Romania and California, doctors at Salt Lake Regional Medical Center were surprised to encounter an identical monolith on one patient's CT of the abdomen and pelvis. A middle-aged gentleman presenting with colicky flank pain was assumed to have kidney stones until his imaging came back with what appears to be a miniature triangular monolith contained within the left renal pelvis. The density was consistent with a metallic object, much like the other monoliths found around the world. And this was my favorite part. It says, treating physicians were eager to publish a report of the first ever documented case of acute monolithiasis. The patient was admitted to the floor for observation and serial imaging. Management of the condition will be supportive, as the tiny monolith is projected to disappear on its own within a couple days after discovery. (laughs) (laughs) What in the heck? You know, I just, it just made me laugh. And again, took me back in time to uh, that, that time when the world was crazy before COVID, when things like metal monoliths could just appear randomly in the desert or in, uh, in different parts of the world. So maybe we'll get back to similar types of madness soon. (laughs) Hopefully. On a slightly more serious note, because I do think this is something worth us discussing for a little bit. Uh, I did read a, an article um, talking, and, and the title of the article is Why Always Being Positive Might Be the Worst Thing for Physicians to Do. Mm. So you hear that title, and what do you start thinking? I mean, that instantly kind of makes me think of like the whole empathy problem mm-hmm. that physicians and healthcare workers have a lot, where like that kind of makes you burnt out because you're just feeling too many feelings all the time. But, geez, that kind of makes you think being positive all the time is the worst thing. Well, huh. you know, as you said, our jobs require us to, uh, to be empathetic. And I think that those of us who are hopefully, you know, the best at our job focus on that and really understand empathy and, and are able to experience it for the benefit of the people that we're taking care of. But one of those things that can happen is, you know, people are going to have bad things happen. doesn't matter how positive you are. There are going to be negative outcomes. You're going to have to give bad news. You're going to have to deal with people who are unhappy, whether it's with an outcome for themselves or with a family member. And if we're always trying to be positive with air quotes around that are positive, we're not being honest, right? Right. And if we're not being honest and we're suppressing these negative emotions, there's some psychological literature that has demonstrated that there's both, um, that there's a lot of harms from both long-term and even systematic emotional suppression. So tamping down some of those more negative feelings and, and then systematically, again, feeling like we don't have a choice, like we have to bury those feelings and those emotions. Right. You know, it, if we're not dealing with our negative emotions, then they're just building up and mm-hmm. uh, are going to, I think, impact us in a negative way. I mean, what sort of experiences have you had 
if any, with, again, not being honest about how you're feeling and maybe trying to suppress some of those more negative feelings, either because you felt you needed to for somebody else or somebody was making you feel like you needed to. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, geez, I feel like this happens more often than I realize in almost like every aspect of my life, like on a more serious note, like I, I don't know, obviously I've, I've mentioned before on the podcast, I'm in counseling. And so I've struggled a lot with that kind of thing in mental health. And I've realized that when I put too much on my plate, like the beginning of this year, I mean, for a couple months now, I've had an internship. I've had this job. I've had full-time schooling. Like I had a lot on my plate. And when people ask me how I am, I usually just say, good, I'm fine. I'm doing great. I'm doing so many good things, you know, mm-hmm. and then I kind of just move on. But when I actually sit and think through the stress and everything that I feel all the time, I'm like, holy crap, <laughs> <laughs> I need to take a breather. But I've seen it a lot at, at work with people who are just super optimistic about everything and like, Oh, this patient's going to be fine. Everyone's going to be fine. I'm like, actually you can't, you can't promise that. And promising that just is going to make you disappointed and sad and the patient and the patient's family disappointed and sad. And it's going to make you feel worse. And it kind of just spirals and it's just, it's a really weird balance to keep. And I know I've seen a lot Um, What our managers have told us a lot is like, don't, don't make promises you can't keep, especially Mm -hmm. in, in healthcare, because you can't say everything's going to be okay because you don't know that, you know? Yeah, that's very true. Which is kind of, it's kind of a scary thing to, to say, because I know my knee jerk reaction when I go into a patient's room and they're really scared about something, you know, they're scared to be in the hospital or whatever, is I want to be like, everything's going to be okay. But I can't say that because then if something's not okay, you know, I just lied, you know, that's a really good point. And, and one of those things that we face a lot in medicine, I'll tell you what I have kind of how I deal with that and Uh the way I approach a situation like that, because as has been mentioned before, you know, I have to give people bad news on a fairly regular basis. I mean, every week I'm telling at least one person, if not multiple people that they have cancer of some kind, right? It's just the nature of my job or in other situations, giving, you know, them other bad news, that kind of stuff. And you know what I tell people is I don't tell people it's going to be all right because I don't Mm -hmm. know that. But what I do tell them is I say, I'm going to do everything I can for you. Mm -hmm. You Yeah. And, and that's been one of the ways I've kind of handled that because I'm being honest, right? I'm doing what I can to give them hope, give them, you know, let them know that I'm going to do everything in my power, but not telling them, oh yeah, you're going to be fine. Cause they might not be right. A lot of them will be, but they might not be. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, well, I've kind of tried to lean towards when I, you know, try to give words of comfort is like similar to that. I've, I've kind of just been like, we're here to take care of you. Yeah. 
And then I kind of just leave it at that. <laughs> Especially because <laughs> like it's, it's true. Yeah. Like I am going to take care of them, but also I'm not the one that does most of the medical talking anyways. I'm I'm yeah. the one that goes in and I'm like, I'm gonna do your vitals. Yeah. <laughs> or like do you need water? <laughs> like, but still like, especially if we get someone coming in in the middle of the night and they're scared because they just had an accident, like a really terrible accident or something like that. And obviously it's a really scary situation. I really just try and stick with, we're here to take care of you. Let me know if you need anything. I'm literally here to help you the entire time, you know? So I just try and stick with that, but that's great. I think that's a really good way to approach it. One of the things that this article I was looking at brings up that I think is important for us to remember is negative emotions have a purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that negative emotions can do is help us understand where maybe we have unmet needs in our lives. Yeah. And in a job where our entire focus is taking care of other people's needs. Mm -hmm. And everything we're doing all day, every day is trying to make things better for other people. Mm -hmm. It becomes a situation where if we don't recognize the needs that we have ourselves, then we do a worse job taking care of people. Right. And so I think it's important to not ignore our negative emotions. We don't want to be ruled by them either. But right. by not ignoring them, I think we can have some insight into, you know, why am I feeling this way? Why am I angry? Why am I frustrated? Why am I, whatever it may be, what needs do I need to take right. care of? What unmet needs exist in me so that I can do a better job both for myself, but for the other people that I need to take care of? Right. Yeah. That makes me think of two things like that are very fundamentally human, like pain is, you know, literally there to let us know something is wrong and something needs to be fixed, you know, uh-huh. which is such a weird thing. Cause you know, then if you have someone with a high pain tolerance or people who can't feel things, you know, they can't feel pain in certain areas of their body or something that's really dangerous. Cause pain yeah. is letting, you know, something's, something's got to happen. Some you got to fix something, there's something mm-hmm. wrong. And then it also makes me think of how babies cry when they need something. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing because they're letting you know something needs to be done. You know, yeah, they're either hungry or they're tired or they have a poopy diaper or something like that. You know, <laughs> like it, it kind of just makes me think about how negative emotions are very fundamentally human because they let us know, like you said, that there are needs that need to be met. Yeah, which is kind of a different way to think about it. I like that. So, like I say, I think it's always good for us. <laughs> In, in healthcare, I think it's good in every, no matter what job you're in, no matter what you're doing, in life, not even at work, but in family and in our interpersonal relationships, but understanding that our emotions are a feedback loop, that they exist for a reason. And we don't want to let our emotions control us, but if we can use those emotions, we can recognize them and learn how to, uh, how to allow them to influence us to make changes if necessary, or even sometimes, you know, one of the things that I uh, struggle with and that I see, I think a lot of people struggle with is sometimes just accepting that I'm feeling a certain way, you know, 
being able to say, Hey, I feel sad, angry, this, that, the other, and that's okay. I don't need to try and figure out exactly why sometimes I just need to recognize how I'm feeling, accept it, and then kind of not necessarily ignore it and move on, but go, sometimes I'm not going to be able to fix this. So sometimes I just need to recognize what I'm feeling and that it's okay for me to feel that. And I think sometimes giving ourselves permission to have negative feelings is a huge step to being able to deal with them. No, absolutely. Because once you, once you kind of accept that negative, negative emotion, you sort of have, have a bit of peace with it because you're not trying to fight it. Yeah. I've, I found that something I struggle with a lot, especially if I feel anxious, I really, I search and search for a reason why, and I will find one. If I search hard (laughs) enough, (laughs) I will find a reason why I need to be anxious. (laughs) <laughs> which is not good. <laughs> so I, when I, when I find myself like thinking of a reason, I'm like, why am I anxious right now? Like something's happening. I need to be anxious about, I literally have to take a step back and be like, there probably is not a reason for me to be anxious. Mm-hmm. And I need to stop searching for one because I will find one. <laughs> <laughs> I need to stop it right here and just accept the fact that I'm feeling anxious right now. And just move on. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad thing to learn. And I think there's a lot of people who, you know, we can all learn how to do that better in our lives. So. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, should we get to our main topic for the day? Heck yeah. All right. I think this one's going to be a little fun as we mm-hmm. were thinking about what we wanted to talk about. Um, and this is honestly something we, this is a well, we can probably go back to again in the future because oh yeah, it's, it's such a deep well. We decided we wanted to talk about uh, portrayals of medicine in popular media, in particular kind of movies and TV shows. And mostly is going to be focusing on TV shows today, but, but we thought it might be fun to talk about again, how is medicine depicted in media? And probably we're going to talk about how it is so terribly, terribly wrong. So bad. Uh, But you know, a lot of fun to talk about. So to kick it off, let's talk about the beginning of the Marvel movie, Dr. Strange. Now <laughs> I love Marvel movies. You know that I know you love mm-hmm. Marvel movies. We're big fans yep. of the Marvel cinematic universe and in, in the Jones household, but boy, i watched the beginning of this just earlier tonight. And I was like, Oh, I can't watch this. So, so bad. So, for those who may not remember this scene in, in Dr. Strange, we've got Stephen Strange, this amazing neurosurgeon. Okay? <laughs> and the first time we're introduced to him, he's tapping his toe and he's doing surgery in the operating room. They're listening to Chuck Mangione. That's what I think is supposed to be the anesthetist. Oh. But the anesthetist isn't sitting by an anesthesia machine. And in looking, at the, in looking at the layout of the OR... I couldn't find an anesthesia machine. <laughs> <laughs> so it so should just magically asleep. <laughs> there's problem number one. I can't find the <laughs> anesthesia machine. Now, maybe this is because this is a fictional universe. They've got some super ultra compact, like little single monitor anesthesia machine, and they don't actually need the whole ventilator system. And they don't need right. the tanks of gas that are hooked up to the back of it to actually ensure the patient's oxygenating. 
And they don't need the vaporizers for the anesthetic inhalation agents that are keeping the patient asleep. They don't need any of that. They just need a fancy looking screen and the screen just kind of takes care of it all. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) So that was one of the things that drove me crazy. I was like, where the heck is the freaking anesthesia machine? How is this patient asleep still? How are they not dead? Who is monitoring them? I don't (laughs) see. Where's their EKG? Where's their pulse oximetry? Where's their end tidal CO2? So that I know that they're actually breathing off their car. Like, nah, you're just guessing. They look like they're breathing. It's fine. I mean, come on. It's Dr. Strange. He's the best neurosurgeon in the universe. And so he just kind of knows. must be fine. I mean, you can look at the patient's brain and go, their oxygen levels are good. (laughs) I mean, who couldn't do that, right? When you're as good as him, totally. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Another thing that kills me at the beginning of the scene is you see him scrubbing his hands to scrub into surgery. That's great. Mm -hmm. It's definitely something that we do before we get into a sterile procedure. Interestingly, Short of doing like a first thing in the morning scrub, a lot of us are moving away from doing the whole sponge under the water thing. And we're mm-hmm. using alcohol-based scrubs. Uh, not only are they more effective, they're a lot faster. And so right. that's actually really nice because you're not standing there scrubbing. Um, but you know that aside, that's fine. Um, but he scrubs in. He gets his hands so that theoretically they're as clean as they're going to be. They're not sterile, but they're as close as they're going to get. Mm-hmm. And then he reaches up and he puts on his mask. Oh, yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you don't touch anything after you've scrubbed because you've got to no. go and put your gown and your gloves on and then you don't touch anything that's not sterile. What are you doing? And this is one of those. And the reason I find it so frustrating is it's so unnecessary. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, just get the sequence right put the mask on <laughs> and then go scrub. Why? Why are you doing it backwards? It does. I, oh, again, we've got the biggest company in the biggest movie company in the world with the movies that make more money than anything else. And they can't even like freaking get the order correct in how you do. You would think they could have like a simple medical, um, like expert or something on the scene to just be like, actually flip those two shots. Just, you know, just flip them. Right. That's it. <laughs> Look, Marvel, Disney, I offer myself for all future medical consulting. I'd be more than happy. Any scenes taking place in the hospital, I throw myself at your feet. I will do it for you for a modest fee. We'll talk about my consulting prices later. But I mean, come on. It would take 30 seconds for somebody to watch this and go, uh, hold on, guys. Just flip those. Just turn them Just around. Just flip them. Put the mask on, then go to the scrub scene. That's all you got to do. So. <laughs> oh, man. So then another part of it that drives me crazy. He's in there. He's operating. And it shows you a couple scenes where there's great big set of windows outside the OR. And there's a bunch of what I assume are residents. Now, I assume they're residents because they're wearing white coats, but they're long white coats. Okay. Medical students generally have short white coats. And when you're a resident, then you get a long white coat. This is just one of the silly traditional hierarchical things in medicine and medical education. Okay. And then you get to be an attending like me and you just don't ever wear a white coat again because you don't need to. And they're big and heavy and hot and who cares, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there is a reason we used to refer to the operating room as the operating theater. 
And in older hospitals at more, you know, very prestigious locations, there still is the operating room and there's like a second floor where there was, there was seating where people could watch and observe surgeries. Right. That is a very traditional thing. And yes, it happened. It doesn't happen like this anymore for multiple reasons. Number one, you are too damn busy as a resident to stand outside a room and watch somebody operate. Right. You know, you might have one or two residents who are on service with you who are in there watching, but you're not going to have a whole gaggle of people outside standing there with Mm -hmm. notebooks and taking notes. Furthermore, what notes are they taking? I mean, you got this cocky, arrogant guy who's in there like pulling stuff out. Like you're really not taking (laughs) notes. I mean, do you need to take notes on certain aspects of surgery? Absolutely. But so much of it is just experiential. You learn by just being there and doing it. That standing there and watching somebody right. and taking a whole bunch of notes, mm-hmm. especially at the point in the scene, there's nothing to take notes on. Whatever. Again, am I being nitpicky? Yes, I am. Because this is Marvel. <laughs> they could do better. They should do better. And and it's very close to my heart they to see these sorts of things. Then... <laughs> yeah, and it makes sense. You do this it like so often. It truly seeing does. it done wrong, you're like, ah. <laughs> another part that yeah. drives me crazy, and then we'll move on from Doctor Strange. But another part that drives me crazy is then we get the scene where there's a guy who somebody in the ER is saying, we're going to take this dude and harvest his organs because he's brain dead, because he's got a bullet in the brain stem. And, you know, bullet in the brain stem, that's a pretty bad place for a bullet to be. But of course, Dr. Strange figures out that, oh, well, it's this uh, hardened bullet that blah, 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 and toxic chemicals into the cerebral spinal fluid and yada, yada, yada. And he's going to go pull the bullet out. And the dude who made the wrong call is like, oh, I'll I'll assist you. And he's like, no, Dr. So-and-so, whatever Christine's last name, she will assist me. She's an ER doctor. (laughs) An ER doctor is not going to go and assist a neurosurgeon. (laughs) And then they go in there, and the only thing that I can assume is happening is they're removing a piece of the skull. Right. And they don't have masks on. I yeah. do remember that and it's part. Like, that but here's part the worst part. Me. Again, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. I could understand if you're like, ooh, we really want to see their facial expressions and make sure we understand everything they're saying so we don't want their masks on. But then as soon as he asks for like image guidance or something, and they bring in the C-arm, which you wouldn't use probably a C-arm mm-hmm. if you're doing the brain, you'd use an O-arm. Again, another little just fiddly technical technicality here. But technicality. then all of a sudden <laughs> they have masks on. I'm just like, oh. oh and yeah, again, I, 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 I'm hard <laughs> on it because I love them. But I'm just like, come on. For a, such a small scene, it's only like five minutes. Come you really could have just tightened this thing up and not hurt the souls of doctors everywhere who are watching this. So there's my number one, my number one example. All right, Aubrey, talk to me about <laughs> Grey's Anatomy. Oh my goodness, there is so much to talk about. I'm excited to hear about this because, here, let's give a little background. What is your experience with Grey's Anatomy? And then I'll briefly share my experience. I got weirdly obsessed with it. When I was, I don't know, maybe like 15, 16 or something like that. A couple of years ago when I started really getting into, yeah, medical stuff is what I want to do. And I'd heard it was good. And I was like, okay. So I got very obsessed with it. And I watched it all the way through probably season 15. And there's maybe 14. And then there's 17 seasons, maybe 18. I don't even remember. There's a lot. That's a lot of seasons. So I've watched 
a lot of Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> and I've fallen off of it because it's just become too much. Like, it's just so dramatic and it would get so stressful too. Oh, so my so then I stopped. <laughs> my history with Grey's Anatomy is I watched one episode with you. I remember this. And it was the episode where, what, some dudes like built a, like a homegrown bazooka or something and then like shot the explosive into the other dude's belly and yeah so there's a bomb inside a person's abdomen mm-hmm. it's like the whole premise of that mm-hmm. episode and it's like this whole first thing, of all i like... don't understand how that happens how does an unexploded <laughs> bomb get inside somebody's abdomen no idea but the whole thing is like it's like someone when they came in through the er someone's been holding it because i don't remember if it was like one of the ones where if you like tilt it, it goes off. Something where you needed to keep it still. So there's this person with a literal, like holding the bomb inside the person's abdomen yeah. while they're like rushing them to surgery or something. And then there's like. But I remember this... they couldn't rush them too fast because right, there was something right. about like there was a little bump in the road or something. Or maybe they were going down the elevator and everybody's mm. like, oh, hold still. We've got to be careful. Something like that. And then there's this whole dramatic thing where, like, the main character, Meredith Grey, like, switches out with that doctor and holds the bomb. And everyone's like, no, Meredith, no, or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) But then what was the most confusing is that then the bomb goes off. I think they get it out of, I don't know, I think they get it out of the person because I think the person lives. But then the bomb explodes and no one dies. No one's really injured. Here's the best part about the whole thing for me. We know we have a bomb in the hospital. Right. And they don't evacuate anyone. Nope, no. The whole evacuation. rest of the hospital is just like chilling like a villain. They're just like <laughs> boop ba doo ba doo. Sure hope that bomb down in the operating room doesn't explode. Like Yeah, what world? <laughs> what world is there a bomb in the operating room and everybody's just like cool. I'm all yeah. right with that. I They're mean, just chilling. Oh my gosh. That just, oh, that killed me. Yeah. And, and like the bomb explodes and it's like the slow motion scene of everyone like, you know, falling backwards and then people like hitting their heads on the ground, like all in slow motion, but <laughs> no one's fatally injured and like everything's fine. Like everyone kind of just gets up and they're like, wow, that's cool. cool. Bomb. <laughs> bomb. It's someone's abdomen. That's nice. <laughs> So, so yeah, I, all I could talk about was that part of it. And I was just like, oh my gosh, yeah. I can't, I can't even, I can't, oh, yeah. it hurts me. No, but the first episode, and like, I understand that this is supposed to be like a medical drama. So like the drama part of it is like 90% of it, but it's still funny to talk about. So we can still, we can still make fun of it. Yes, the we can. First, and we shall. <laughs> the first episode opens where the main character just slept with a guy she met at a bar the night before and they don't know each other's names that's how it opens and then okay. she's like oh crap it's my first day at work she's an intern at, at the hospital <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh-huh <laughs> yep it's her first day at work and she, yep uh-huh. <laughs> so, oh, oh, oh my gosh i can't breathe <laughs> oh no it gets worse it gets worse oh, okay, okay. Or better. keep going keep going so then she shows up to the hospital and guess who's her attending the, guy the dude she slept, she slept with. with. Uh-huh. The guy she slept with. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, 
I had to mute my microphone there. I couldn't breathe. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Yeah, so that's the first episode. And then it's this whole... They have this whole dramatic love story where then eventually they get married after like nine seasons of them going back and forth and back and forth. Which, first of all, is so unrealistic with like coworkers. I was going to say, so he's an attending. Yeah. She's an intern and then a yeah. resident and all this. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that right there would be grounds for dismissal. Yeah. And very potentially grounds, you know, it's not quite the same. I know that board of medicine will get involved if a doctor has a relationship with a patient and that can often lead to a license being revoked. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of an attending with a, an intern or a resident, I don't think that's something that would go to a board of medicine, but that is something that any respectable residency program, there would be official they action. So they fast. would shut that down. And yeah, that would be, uh, and part of the reason, not only is it inappropriate, but there's such a huge imbalance of power yeah. that nobody could look at that relationship and say it was that's purely evil. consensual. Yeah, that's 50-50. No. Yeah. No, there is, whether the people involved feel there is or not, there is a degree of coercion. Yeah. And so, yeah, that would absolutely be, like, he would be at the very least on administrative leave and most likely would be fired and would lose his faculty appointment Yeah, and should lose his faculty appointment. And not only is there that relationship, but there is probably, there's another relationship where it's an intern and an attending and there's another relationship like a season in or some two seasons in where it's a relationship with a patient and then the patient dies and it's like a really, really dramatic, sad thing. Yeah, so that would definitely hit the Board of Medicine if it yeah. got reported. And, like, it, in the show, it's not really, like, it's kind of looked down upon, but no one really cares. They're like, eh. Like, aw, she's in love with this patient. Oh, he's kind of a cutie. You know, like, like right. it's not, and whatever. But So not only is there all of those weird relationships, but then there's people sleeping together in the on-call rooms all the time. Every episode. Yeah. Every single episode. Which obviously, no, people are actually sleeping in the on-call rooms. So let me, let me preface this by saying I have limited experience. <laughs> I have only done one residency and right. I've only gone to medical school once. Right. So in terms of how much experience do I have, you know, it's, it's not a lot in that regards. Right. I do not remember at all. Any hanky-panky going on in the call rooms. No. Now, may, maybe it happened occasionally, and I'm sure that there were a few times that maybe something like that happened. But you bring up a very good point, and that is we were sleeping. If we were yeah. in the call room, we wanted to be asleep. It's because you had a freaking long shift, and you finally had a chance to sleep, so you're going to sleep. And you, you, when you're working 30 hours straight, you sleep whenever yeah. you can sleep. I mean, three rules of surgery as a surgery resident. Number one, sleep when you can. Number two, eat when you can. And number three, don't screw with the pancreas, but you know, whatever. <laughs> but, but like you did, you slept whenever you could. You're not going to be engaging in coitus in the call room because number one, you're too dang tired to do it. Number two, you just, you, you have respect for your fellow residents who are up there in the call room. They don't want to hear about that. They don't want to know. I mean... Like, I don't know. Again, maybe there are places where it happens, 
But when I was in training, there was not a whole lot of uh, sleeping around going on because, no. especially at work, because we were just too busy working. And it's unprofessional. Like there's so many things wrong with it that realistically, no. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. on a different note, the other really unrealistic thing that I think you were the one that was like, actually, no, that would never happen is that after these main characters get out of their first like intern year, it's like a resident has like five interns and they just stick together and they like train them <laughs> and they like, they're like in charge and they're like, are you, you know, I, but yeah. I, no, that's, I that's not, that is not how it works. <laughs> that is not correct. <laughs> Usually the way it works is you have a team for a specific service. So in the surgical world, you know, we had a bunch of different surgical teams. There were subspecialties, right. whether it was urology or ENT or neurosurgery or orthopedics or, you know, in the general surgery world, we had the trauma and we had the non-trauma general surgery surface and you had vascular and you had cardiothoracic, whatever. You had all these different services and every service had one, maybe two interns on, depending on how big the service was. And then you had different levels of residence. So a lot of times you had an intern and then maybe like a second or a third year, and then maybe a, a senior resident, like a fourth year. And then depending on the service, maybe it had a chief that was on it. Right. And so you only had like one different resident at, diff at each different level on a specific team. Again, with the exception of some of the really big teams that would maybe have two interns on them just because it was too many notes for one intern to, to manage throughout the course right. of the day, too many discharges and, and all that kind of stuff. But you're also all doing stuff. Now, right. surgical residency can be a little different than a medical residency. I do know that medicine, you know, medical residencies, they spend a lot more time together as a team. Most of their day is involved in what they refer to as rounding, which is a little different than what we in surgery refer to as rounding. But so they are kind of together as a team. But again, your team is not comprised. It's, it's comprised of a few different residents of different levels. In surgery, well, you've got the intern. We all rounded together in the morning. And then the interns are on the floor answering phone calls from the nurses, discharging patients, writing the progress notes from each day. If you know somebody was coming out of surgery, you were doing a post-op check on them, making sure that everything was in order. And the whole time you're doing this, the rest of your team, they're in the operating room. Mm -hmm. They're doing cases. And so you round as a team first thing in the morning, you round as a team at the end of the day, but that's the only time you're together as a team. Right. Because the rest of the time, we're all doing our work. Right. And in Grey's Anatomy, it's a surgical residency. All of them, that's what we're focusing on is all those main characters are in a surgical residency. That's what I so, thought, which was why yeah. it was so wrong. Yeah. And another thing, there's a couple of things that are so extremely wrong we could talk about, but... Another thing is that when they start as an intern, they don't have a specialty. They're still picking. They don't pick until they get out of residency, which I knew that was not <laughs> facts. But yeah. based on what I know of, of your life, like you picked when you were in med school and then you applied to that residency places, right? Mm -hmm. That is correct. And that like, so in Grey's Anatomy, there's like this whole part where they're trying to like pick what their specialty is going to be and like, Oh, should I take after my mother and do general surgery? Or should I take after my husband? Who's my attending and do neurosurgery? You know, like I'm like, you wouldn't have enough experience in that field to suddenly be an attending in that, in that specialty. 
No, and and so <laughs> here we'll, we'll do it because because this is something that are not that not a lot of people know and understand. And I sometimes think that even my own parents don't fully understand it, even though I lived through it. <laughs> you you go to medical school. Somewhere in your fourth year of medical school, you have to apply to residencies. And when you're applying to residencies, you're picking. That's when you're choosing. Right. So if you're going into a surgical field, that's when you're going to choose. Am I going general surgery, ENT, urology, um, neurosurgery, orthopedics, plastic surgery, things like that. And then you match into that specialty and you do an intern year, which generally is considered a categorical general surgery year where you're just on all of the different general surgery teams and you rotate through all of them. And then after that, you often kind of go off into whatever it is. So for me, it was off in urology and now I'm just doing urology and and the general surgeons are doing general surgery and the neurosurgeons are doing neuro and plastics and ortho and ENT and op, you know all these different things. If you're doing just general surgery, you already know you're doing general surgery. That's what you mm-hmm. matched into. Right. Now, that doesn't mean you can't go and do a fellowship afterwards, but that's right. an additional, that's like an depending on what you do, that's like two to three additional years. And there's only certain fellowships you're going to do. You could maybe go and... If you didn't do a plastics residency, but you decide you want to do plastics, you could get into one of the few plastics fellowships. You could do a trauma critical care fellowship. You could do a colorectal fellowship. You could do a surgical oncology fellowship. You could do, um, you know, like breast cancer reconstruction, that kind of stuff fellowship. There's all these different things that you do, but there's more subspecialized. But what you're not doing is you're not doing a general surgery residency and then flipping and just deciding, well, I want to be this kind of surgeon without either having to do a fellowship in that, or in some cases, even having to go and do a different residency. So we had a resident who was with me. He wanted to do cardiothoracic surgery. So he was going to have to do the five years of general surgery, followed by three years of cardiothoracic surgery fellowship, realized about three years in cardiothoracic surgery in a lot of ways, kind of a dying specialty, interventional cardiology is taking over so much of it, decides he doesn't want to do this and switches into urology. Well, he did four years of general surgery. He still had to do his four years of urology. Right. So that he was complete and fully had done trained. everything and fully trained. <laughs> yeah. So you, you don't just, yeah. Uh, <laughs> hurts yeah. my heart. Yeah. And there's one other big thing that is seen throughout the entire show we can talk about, and then we could talk about a different show, but is that there are doctors in the ER and in the ambulance bay all the time the, <laughs> the residents who are like who are like like the general surgery residents or or the you know the residents who haven't picked their specialty yet because that's uh-huh. not how it works in Grey's Anatomy right are just in the ambulance bay and it's only the doctors of course they are it's only the main characters because that's where it's dramatic when the ambulance pulls in and they start saying a bunch of big medical words and then they see someone come in that's all bloody and they're like ooh we're gonna save their life or whatever you know do, do you know who's never in the ambulance bay? Who? Doctors. Yeah, never. Now, if a stroke alert or a cardiac alert or a trauma gets called in by the EMTs as they're bringing a patient in, there's going to be someone there to meet them. It is not going to be the specialist. It is going to be the ER doctor. Oh, yeah. You know, when we would get a trauma, because I had to run traumas as a second year general surgery resident, when we got a trauma... We would go down to the trauma bay. We didn't go out to the ambulance bay. <laughs> no. We went to the trauma bay 
And we were in the trauma bay, suited up with our lead, our gown, our gloves, our mask, everything ready. So as soon as a patient came in, we could begin our trauma survey and we could start doing whatever we needed to, whether it was intubating them or putting in lines or putting in a chest tube or anything like that. Right. If you're just chilling in the ambulance bay, you're not ready to do all that stuff. No. So you don't want to be there. You just don't. The EMTs know where they're supposed to take that patient. They know where to go in the ER because this is their job, you know? So maybe somebody's like meeting them there and going in with them, but you're not just hanging out in the ER. No, and it's not going to be this like an attending, like a surgical attending that's going to be standing in the ambulance bay ever. No, they have better things to do with their they time. They have other things to do. And like, they'll see them, you know, later once the ER people have got the patient stable enough. Like, that's when the doctors actually go in and see them. It's never like, I don't know. It was just, Like just I said, <laughs> we would run the traumas. They would come in. We would get them all, get their, do their trauma survey, get whatever lines and tubes they needed to get in them get their chest x-rays, their CAT scans, this, that, or the other, and figure out what's going on. And then it was either, do they need to go to surgery or is this a trauma that just needs to go to the floor and we'll observe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's when the attending would get involved once right. we either needed to go to surgery or once we took them to the floor. But other than that, you're just not hanging out down there. You don't have time to hang out down there. Right. You're, you're busy working again. Yeah. Yeah. Let's emphasize this. <laughs> you're busy working <laughs> goodness. But anyway, we can talk about a different show now. What's what's next up on the list? Okay, so we got to talk about House MD. <laughs> so House is one of those shows that I had heard of more than I had seen. Uh, but I'd seen enough for me to know that this had to be on the list. I watched a few little clips and everything and getting ready for this episode. I could not bear to watch more than that. It was so bad. So first of all, <laughs> House is an internal medicine doctor, okay? Internal medicine doctor. He is not a further fellowship-trained internal medicine physician. Some examples of that could be uh, somebody who's done infectious disease. It could be a rheumatologist. It could be an endocrinologist. It could be a pulmonologist. It could be a gastroenterologist. It could be a nephrologist. It could be you know any of these further things. No, he is a, he's an internal medicine doctor. And yet he is constantly doing things like operating on people's brains. <laughs> He's not a neurosurgeon. He, I mean, he, oh, it just, he, he oper- here's what I'd say. He operates beyond the scope of his license constantly. He is acting like he's an infectious disease specialist. And the whole premise is, you know, people come in with things and then these weird things that he's the only one who's smart enough to finally figure out. Okay. That's not what happens. You use your specialists, you consult your specialists and you let them do what they're good at. And you do what you're good at because that's how we best take care of patients in modern world. There are places where internal medicine doctors have to do way more. Those are remote places. Those are rural places. These are not teaching hospitals, which is where he is because he too has residents and he has a whole gaggle of residents who just like follow him around and have to watch him be an unrepentant a-hole to people constantly. There are so many things that I, I was making notes for this and the way I started, I said, this man is a human trash bag. I mean, he just is. He is, look, I know plenty of doctors with really bad bedside manners. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it happens. There's a lot of them. 
I'm sure that many people who may be listening to this have experienced doctors whose bedside manner is, shall we say, lacking. I get that that happens. But this man like is verbally abusive to his patients in such a way that in just these clips I'm watching, again, I'm going, okay, that would lead to a board of medicine complaint. And his behavior is so egregiously bad, it would lead to him having his license revoked. Oh, jeez. Okay. Now, not only is he terrible to the patients, he's terrible to the other doctors. Even those who are like his supervising doctors, the ones who are up the food chain from him, he is completely disrespectful and awful and, again, verbally abusive to them. Oh, yeah. There is no way this man continues to practice at this hospital or have any sort of privileges at this hospital based on his behavior. We don't tolerate that kind of stuff. Right. Again, not to this degree. Unfortunately, we tolerate way more than we should. Oh, yeah. Because excuses. But to his degree, there's no way this flies. No. Now, he's also addicted to pain medication. Like, hmm. openly. I saw this one thing, this one little clip, and he goes over to the pharmacy and asks him to give him some pain pills and then change for a one. And, of course, the pharmacist just gives him a bottle of pain pills because the pharmacist doesn't need an order. The pharmacist isn't like... Who's this for? How many are you giving? Is this being, you know, and again, this is a few years old and maybe things aren't quite what they are now, but we have this thing called the prescription drug awareness program where Mm -hmm. all narcotic prescriptions in the state of Idaho and every state has their own system. Every single narcotic prescription is tracked. Right. And it tracks who wrote it, who was, you know, the patient who picked it up, how many did they give? When did they let, like, I mean, you can go. Oh yeah. And you can log in and you can search and you'll see every single pain prescription that has ever been written for a particular patient within uh, this period of time. And um, he just, they just, the pharmacist just gives him a bottle of pain meds. And then he opens a bottle of pain meds, pours the pills in his pocket, and then goes and fills the bottle with like mints from the 25 cent mint machine because he's just given the patient a sugar pill because he doesn't believe the patient has pain and, and the patient is exhibiting drug seeking behavior. So to teach oh. the patient a lesson, he'd gives them a sugar pill. Oh, wow. But he's also addicted to narcotics and just stole this patient's narcotics and somehow still has privileges at this hospital and somehow wow. is not, uh, completely and totally being monitored and taken care of by his state's, uh, physician addiction recovery program, which every state has as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it just, it hurts me to see how ridiculous it is all played up for the sake of entertainment. And I understand this is entertainment. It's not meant to be factual. Again, I love Marvel movies. Nothing in those Marvel movies is going to happen. Thank goodness. But man, you just watch it. And the way they create drama and everything by just showing things that are so egregiously bad. Yeah. I just, uh, I don't even, I don't even know. Um, Again, I would stay away from that one. It just, it's going to hurt you. It's insulting in how wrong it is. And again, I understand that that's probably sort of part of the whole shtick, but boy, it, uh, it hurt me watching just those clips, not even a whole episode. Yeah. I've only seen maybe a part of one episode in like my health professions class in high school and knowing what you've told me, I remember being like, this seems ridiculous. Not something I think I will watch. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. So, well, let's wrap up and let's talk about one last one. And this one's my favorite. Mm-hmm. 
And we're going to talk about Scrubs now. Unfortunately, you won't be able to talk about that much because you haven't seen Scrubs yet. I actually just purchased it all on iTunes so that you could watch it because I think you'll enjoy it. Scrubs is a comedy and it's a little ridiculous, but here's the thing about Scrubs. Hands down, without question, the most accurate representation of medicine and medical education I've ever seen portrayed on in media. Wow. Especially the first few seasons. After that, mm-hmm. it kind of goes a little bit off the rails just because, I don't know, they didn't, it wasn't as good. Right. But the first few seasons when all of the main characters are residents, it is so spot on. Now, of course, it's exaggerated for the sake of comedy and, and comedic value mm-hmm. and stuff. But it is such a good representation of what is it like. You know, you see them rounding and they're rounding with the attending and the attending is kind of busting their chops a little bit and being hard on them. And that's how it was. You know, I mean, look, I had an attending once we were in the ICU. I'm on my ICU rotation and I'd been on call the night before. We'd had a relatively young guy come in. He was really sick. I don't remember with what, but we had coded him. We'd done CPR and everything on him like three times during the night. Yikes. And we'd kind of learned that his heart went into this weird little arrhythmia. Mm-hmm. And as soon as it did that, we knew within a few minutes he was he was going to code and we were going to have oh. to do CPR and stuff. So it's the following morning. We're rounding in the unit, talking about our patients, presenting them to our attending. And all of a sudden the nurse comes down and she's like, hey, Jones, dude in 16, his heart's doing that thing again. And I kind of sigh and I look at everybody. I'm like, hey, we need to go to room 16. We got to go do chest compressions. Mm-hmm. And everybody looks at me like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, like, really? We got to go to room 16. Like, like, let's go right now. Right. And as we're walking towards room 16, all of a sudden, bird, the monitors go off. And of course, he right. he's he's he, he goes into asystole. And so we got to code him. We got to go do chest compressions. And so one of the internal medicine residents runs in and throws on a gown and starts doing chest compressions. And I'm like, we got to get a central line in this guy. So I'm trying to put a femoral line in. So a great big IV going into his femoral vein. Mm -hmm. Well, excuse me, his femoral artery. And I'm trying to feel his femoral artery. Mm -hmm. Now think about it. Where is the pulse coming from that I'm trying to feel for? In the femur? So it's in the femoral region. It's in the groin. Uh Uh-huh. But what is generating the pulse? The aorta. No the internal medicine resident who's doing chest compressions because the guy's oh, heart geez, is not beating. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. So his heart's not beating. So the only pulse I'm getting is from what this dude is doing, pounding on his chest. And so I'm sitting here gowned up trying to do this. And what does my attending do? He's like, come on, Peter, walk and chew gum at the same time. You don't get to stop your presentation just because you're putting in a line. What? <laughs> so, so in the middle of me trying to put this femoral line in this dude, and the only pulse I can feel is coming from the chest compressions that somebody else is doing. I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, trying to tell the story of what happened to this guy. What did he come in? What do his labs look like? And all this kind of While stuff. While you're putting it on. <laughs> so I understand having an attending who'll bust your chops. Yeah. I also might've had an attending who punched me across an OR table once in the chest, but Hey, whatever, you know, that's oh, just what happens. So exciting. So again, the way that Dr. Cox and Dr. Kelso are pretty hard on the residents in scrubs it's not entirely inaccurate. I've seen it. I've lived it. It really happens. Yeah. But you've got your main characters, your two main, well, there's kind of three main characters and, but the two main guy characters who are roommates, you've got JD, who's arguably the main character of the series. And then you've got Turk, who's his friend, who's his roommate, his, and JD is an internal medicine resident Mm -hmm. and Turk is a surgery resident. And the way they portray kind of the conflict between medicine and surgery is so good. 
there is a musical episode that's basically like West Side Story, the sharks versus the jets, <laughs> except it's medicine versus surgery. And they're like walking down the hall and like snapping their fingers and doing a total <laughs> dance off in the halls of the hospital and everything. And I'm sitting here watching and I'm like, this is ridiculous, but it is true. That is how we feel when the medicine team calls us for an in, a consult. We're like, you guys are so stupid. Why didn't you do the right thing? And when we would call them for a consult, they're like, how are you so stupid that you can't take care of this? You know, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And so it was so accurate and so funny because I'm like, yes, this is what it is like. Um, it is a good show. Again, I, and I never watched all of the seasons. I guess I can now, but... I heard a lot of people say that once kind of the main characters became attendings at the same hospital, it wasn't as good. Mm. But man, those first three or four seasons when it really is just following these guys along, these I mean, there's there's a couple other main characters as well who are women. But following this kind of group of four, following them along and watching kind of how do they deal with medicine, how do they interact, it was so close to reality other than just being exaggerated. So I don't know, like I say, it is great. It is totally worth watching. And if you want to know what it's like as a resident, watch Scrubs. That's the one, yeah. Watch Scrubs. Don't watch Grey's Anatomy. Everything you've told me, do not watch Grey's Anatomy. Do not no. watch House. No. Um, you know, my mother loved ER when I was a kid and I don't remember if ER was any good. I just remember feeling like it was so dramatic all the time, just like everything oh, yeah. was cranked up to like 11 constantly. But, <laughs> but no, watch Scrubs, and I think you get a pretty good idea. What is it like to be a resident in medicine? It's yeah. definitely worth watching. So. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to try it out. Oh, yeah. It's great. And, and there's, some really, there's some really affecting um, episodes in there. Like I remember... There's one that I won't spoil it, but you know, this character's there and there's this big twist at the end. And then you realize the whole time what had been going on and it kind of rewinds and plays back and you realize, oh, so this had been what's been happening the whole time and, and you kind of missed it. So, um, but it's, it's good. And again, at least those first few seasons, so accurate, such a good representation of what is it like in medicine. And I'm sure that there's a bunch of little inaccuracies here and there, but but because overall it does such a good job, like I forget all of those things. So right, I don't know. It's, you know, you know, I can't watch medical shows. Yeah. I just can't. No. Um, Dr. Pimple Popper drives me bananas <laughs> again. Why in the world do you have a dermatologist who is taking out lipomas and draining abscesses and things like that? That's not generally what dermatologists do. No. And, and so all these weird little things that I'm just like, uh, you know, I, I live medicine. It's, it's what I do all day. It's what I had often do most of the night and, and evenings <laughs> and weekends and stuff too, depending on what's going on. But yeah, like watching bad misrepresentations of medicine and media, it just drives me bonkers. I can't do it. Oh, yeah. And, and like we were talking about with Dr. Strange, it's funny because it's not that hard. There are lots of doctors in the world and it shouldn't be that hard to have somebody just be like, just give us a quick little rundown of how are we doing here? What do we need to change? Read the script. Tell me what you think about it. And it would save a lot of these inaccuracies. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> but you know, again, thought it would be fun for us to talk about <laughs> vent and rant just a little bit. Okay. I might've ranted more than just a little bit, but yeah. <laughs> sometimes you got to just get your rant on, right? You just got to get it out. No. And with me, like learning more how hospital 
I guess, culture and vibes are, I see it more and more, like, the inaccuracies in in shows and stuff. I'm like, that actually would never happen. <laughs> so right. I enjoy the venting. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I say, as you continue to progress through your uh, your career path, you will more and more begin to appreciate <laughs> just how uh, just how bad it can actually be. So yeah. All right. Well, anything else that you want to bring up before we wrap it up today, Aubrey? Not really. That was fun to talk about okay. all of those because there's it's such like a broad spectrum of like super bad and dramatic, super also bad and dramatic, and then like funny and good. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's just well. Funny. We'll wrap it up now, but again, it was great to talk to you. Glad you're yeah. doing well and uh, stay busy, but stay sane. That's the most important thing. <laughs> We're trying our best. <laughs> it's all we can do is try. And again, thanks to everybody who's listening. Uh, if you uh, give us a listen, we'd love it if you would uh, subscribe. If you're not subscribed, leave us a review in your favorite podcatcher of choice if it allows for it. I think that we're definitely a five-star podcast, but uh, <laughs> if not, you know, let us know what we can do to get a five-star from you. Heck Otherwise, yeah. we'll look forward to chatting again in a couple of weeks and uh, we'll, we'll talk about some more medicine. Sounds good. See you guys. Okay, bye. Bye.